0: This is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Today I'm here with Sean Scott, author of Millennials and the Moments That Made Us, A Cultural History of the U.S. from 1982 to the Present. Sean, welcome.
1: Hello. How's it going, Rebecca?
0: Great. So I'm wondering if you can start off by just sharing a little bit about um, how you came about writing this book, why this book, and what brought you to this topic.
1: Yeah, well... So the whole process of writing this book has taken, or had taken, about two and a half years. I started on it, um, and first, it sort of forced occurred to me to write uh, a book that was a cultural history of millennials, knowing that there wasn't out there that ex- there wasn't one out there that existed. Um, sort of in late 2014, um, when uh, the the killer of um, Michael Brown. Uh, was acquitted um with no charges pressed uh and later it sort of happens again with the also the police killer of uh Eric Garner in December of uh 2014 is also or late November I think that was a 2014 is exonerated as well and um it was a time when you know republicans had also taken back a host of um seats in the senate um in the congress And I turned 30, somewhere in the middle of that. So um, I think just growing very, very reflective about the role that I played personally, I guess, as a thinker or as a writer um, in trying to shed light on what I thought was not just um, sort of moment-to-moment events that were going on, but something like a generational condition. I mean, I remember hearing about what was going on um, in St. Louis as far as the unrest that Black Lives Matter helped to spearhead against the unjust acquittal of this killer, Mike, of this mm-hmm. killer of Michael Brown. And that happens, if I'm remembering correctly, at the same time that there's like a um, either a Monday night football game or a Thursday night football game um, in which the St. Louis Rams, if I'm not mistaken, were actually playing, so that there was this kind of weird um, – Disconnect or this sort of weird juxtaposition between this in- incredibly weighty and um, dense and sad and tragic um, and also completely historically consistent example of uh, a killer of a young black life going without punishment and also just like really really super banal American popular culture and so I think that was kind of the the nervous center of the creative nervous center of the book. And I thought to myself, well, if you can find a way, um, and, and, and as, I mean, this is not what I'm processing sort of in the moment as I'm watching these things, but I think looking back on it now in retrospect, you know, it's like, if you can find a way to introduce, um, ways of explaining how it was that, that very, very, very light cultural sort of, uh, covering of Rainier is related to that very, very dense, uh, structural, um, sort of critique, then you've got something there that um, could be spun out over a number of pages. And so that's what the book is a, is is kind of um, at its core emotionally about in some ways.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you don't just sort of give us like here are millennials, but you divide this book into starting with 1982 and moving to the present and sort of this how millennials were born and the childhood of millennials moving to youth and young adulthood and adulthood. So could Mm -hmm. you talk, we can get into the childhood and and how you define millennials, but could you talk just a little bit about why you sort of divided the book the way you did?
1: Sure. I mean, so millennials are and have been for a few years now, a very hot topic. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that is lost is that um, when you're describing somebody who's a millennial now, um, you're talking about somebody who was once a child, then a teenager, then a young adult, um, and finally an adult. Um, and so the book kind of goes into the ways that uh capitalism as a power structure and capitalism as an ideology has um and as a political system, as it turns out, has found different ways of making use of millennials at every stage in our life cycles, right? Mm-hmm. So um very, very early on, um Millennials represent uh, a consumer block for many American corporations right I talk about this in, in the rise of uh, child focused marketing in the Reagan era, certain FCC protections which had pre- which had previously existed um, that barred uh, American corporations from you know uh, from advertising directly to millennials are lifted in the age of Reagan. So that you find popular culture in this era, and I'm a millennial. I was born in 1984. My earliest memories are of popular culture that I later found out in the process of researching this book really amounted to little more than advertisements, right? Mm-hmm. Like Ghostbusters um, as a cartoon immediately tied to um, action figures that you know parents were supposed to lobby their – or kid, that kids were supposed to lobby their parents to then go buy Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Gem. Um, G.I. Joe, all sorts of ways and other sort of cultural pop culture manifestations that made it really, really clear um, and that make it obvious that um, child focused marketing dominated a lot of the earliest memories that many millennials have. And so that's just sort of one example that I talk about in the first quarter of the book on the way of spinning out how it was that um, whether it was uh, millennials as consumers in the 1980s and 90s or millennials as Low wage workers and soldiers in the aftermath of 9-11 and the Great Recession. How is it that millennials have been plugged into, related to, talked to in, in the context of this, uh, this, this late capitalist superstructure that the book um, is, revolves around temporally?
0: Right so you start out by giving us how giving us a definition of millennial for you and for your structure and for the context of your book so can you talk a bit about how you came to define millennial and the age range and and all of that
1: Right it's it's a point of contention for many mm. people right I mean this is one of kind of the the fun things about talking about generational categories or one of at least the most discussed is like where like, how do you actually define or break down a generation? I think for millennials, um, there are um, at least two very, very credible sources around uh, the age range age range that defines the millennial generation. Pew Research Center uh, defines the age range as 1981 through 1997. Um, you'll see in some places, some writers like Paul Taylor will stretch that a little bit and, and maybe um, push that out to 1980 or so um Neil Howe and William Strauss on the other hand which were sort of the the uh, a couple of marketers who had done sort of the the first uh serious thinking about recent american generations define that age range for millennials as 1982 to 2004 um and so there are a lot of different ways and sort of sources i mean japanese americans have been numbering and naming their generation since the early 20th century you have um you know Native American thinkers who have been uh, talking about uh, sort of this idea that um, exists from the uh, Iroquois nation that when one generation makes their sort of a decision, they have to think seven generations ahead. So generations have occupied an important mythological sort of function in American thinking and in thinking generally in the United States. Um, But when it comes down to it, you have to put something in the subtitle of the book. So ultimately, I kind of decide Um, In calling the book A Cultural History of the United States from 1982 to the present to side with the William Howe, the Neil Howe, William Strauss states, because in in sort of the first thinking that they did about um, this particular context in the early 1990s in a book called Generations really outlined a qualitative shift that uh, marked attitudes towards childhood in the 1980s, right? 1982 is the first year that we see baby on board signs. A year, is late, a year later in 1983, Mothers Against Drunk Driving forms, I think, in one of the few uh, government programs that was actually expanded under the Ronald Reagan era. Medicaid is expanded towards uh, children who were born in poverty in September of 1983. Um, and just a general shift away from um, an attitude that I think could be called a little bit more laissez-faire as far as child rearing and child raising was concerned mm-hmm. to one very much of um, protectionism and as far as many are concerned overprotection. Yeah. And it does come up in the course of the book that that was largely an act of, of overcompensation, right? Like right. it's not actually the case that parents were spending more time or more interested or more involved in their children's lives in the mid to late 1980s than they were In the 1970s, but nonetheless, there is sort of this cultural texture of overcompensation that says we have to get tough on crime for our kids. We have to have better schools via government programs like or government directives like a nation at risk for our kids. Um, We have to crack down on child, um, the abduction of children for our kids. All of these these sort of these ideas that are floating around in the air that start to happen and start to start to um, become much more clear as the 1980s progress. And were are much more absent in the seventies and earlier 1980s so that I feel legitimated in saying, if you have to pick a cutoff here, you may as well pick sort of the year of the authors that end up making this case the most, um, you know, sort of programmatically. And so that's why I end up siding uh, with Strauss and Howe and going with 1982.
0: Right. And one of the things that you're sort of alluding to when you, you know, mentioned some of the policies that were put into place, which I think is also really important for the beginning and for the structure of your book is really thinking about the latchkey children and being part of a latchkey generation, right, and the latchkey child. Right. And can you talk a little bit about that and how that sort of defines some of your argument?
1: Yeah, so... You know, I'm really kind of concerned with really two sort of macro moments in American history, right? The, mm-hmm. um, and how popular culture as a whole sort of reflects these, reflects those macro moments on a micro scale. Um, I think it's definitely the case that as far as parenting is concerned, from the years spanning 1945, the end of World War II, onto, um, you know, the middle, the middle 1970s, 1973, to be exact, when uh, real wages in the United States peak, there's a general, general kind of consensus that had been reached about how it was that American life at the macro level and at the micro level was supposed to proceed, right? You had, um, uh, the utter enfranchisement of male breadwinners, um, who were handsomely compensated in, uh, in an era of, uh, full employment, or at least the uh, gesture towards full employment, And that that also, that really informs the way that men are relating to women, men and women are expected to relate to children as far as women assuming a larger caretaker role and domesticated role um, in federally subsidized suburbs across the country. That social order starts to break down. um, And as you start to get into the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, as evidenced by the film, uh, nine to five that comes out in 1980, right? That there, um, uh, there's a general expectation that women now are going to be seeking um, financial independence in the workplace. That uh, corporate America has, you know, suddenly, after years and years of social movements that were, you know, sort of sort of happened with the initiative largely of people of color, there is now an opening in uh, the general American uh, private sector sector for women where it previously had not existed, and that that. Uh, that has profound ramifications for the ways that millennials are brought up. Um, The latchkey thesis, which is pretty integral to the first half of the first two parts of the book, right? Mm -hmm. The first six chapters um, deals a lot with this idea of what is it? What does it actually mean to grow up in the context of not having two parents who are around number one and number two, when popular culture and the state are largely deputized to raise kids and serve certain parental functions that, we used to think that parents themselves were supposed to serve. Um, a great example of this, right, um, that we sort of see uh, in the 1980s is like this idea of Nickelodeon, right? Like the idea that there's supposed to be 24-hour programming that's aimed at and catered towards children. And that rather than sort of serving the role of – um Mark, Mark Fisher, who um, wrote a book called Capitalist Realism on – The same publisher, Zero Books, through which my book is published, made this point very eloquently in his book, Capitalist Realism, talking about when uh, both parents are away and popular culture then sort of serves as the babysitter for the kids that are around. That uh, popular culture is going to be very much oriented around a certain level of permissiveness and sort of failing to occupy the, the traditional disciplinary role that we end up seeing. Um, parents in the home perhaps playing so that you get something like Nickelodeon that says um, in exact and it's a, in its own words kids rule right like creating a universe into itself where um, kids are sort of able to make the rules while parents are away and that we know that Nickelodeon was sort of only the earliest example of this kind of trend you have you have whole programming blocks on um, either you know Disney afternoon or um, other stations that are really Really, the the entire function of these uh, programming blocks is to um, cater to kids before they leave for school and when they get back. So I think, you know, many millennials, depending on when, you know, sort of age, age range wise, where many of us ended up um, being born, there's no stage in the 1980s or, early, or 1990s where this wasn't the case, that you didn't see a lot of entertainment that was to sort of serve this right. um, role that parents once were supposed to.
0: And and in doing that, right? The also with parents, um, we have you sort of talk about the American mom and the American dad and how they're sort of set up and, and changing in those eight in the nineteen eighties. And so, can you talk a little? And one of the things that I found really interesting was. Um, the dead mom, (laughs) how the mother sort of does not exist in the sitcom. And so can you talk about those um, sort of how we are portraying and showing the different, the American mom and the American dad in a new way in this like early night or, you know, throughout the 1980s.
1: Right. So I think it's definitely the case that uh, there is a lot of anxiety that sort of uh, seeps its way through popular culture about this changing socioeconomic arrangement where, Men are working if they are, as uh, Arlie Hoschild excuse me, writes in a book called *The Second Shift*. That um, as a result of as a result of the demise of the blue collar sector, uh, relative demise of the blue collar sector in the United States, and the rise of um, an economy economy that's oriented much more around service work, that you know, popular culture, sort of as a superstructure, is dealing with a lot of these changes in very interesting ways. I think that the sort of the dead mom premise, which I focus on a lot in chapter three, is just really trying to think about like, why is it in the 1980s that you saw through through the 1980s and 90s, actually, that you saw so many films and television shows and cartoons that were sort of premised on the idea of like the mom being killed off somehow in some sort of a tragic accident, and sort of observing what it is that families had to do. And children often has not had to do on the ground to sort of compensate for the lack of um, or the removal of a traditional, uh, caretaker in the home. And, you know, so you see this in the, in the movie, you know, land before time, you see it in, uh, Curly Sue, you see it in full house, you see it in Alf, you just see it, um, in so many different sort of ways that I, um, sort of outline in the book. The conclusion that I sort of come to is like, rather than sort of deal head on with saying, you know, here's what it looks like for a family to respond maturely to not having, uh, as much of a typical uh, maternal presence in the home. Many of these uh, sort of pop culture apparitions deal with this this, um, societal transition rather disingenuously by just saying, well, we're just going to remove the mom altogether, right? We're just going to kill her off, and then we're going to sort of demonstrate what it is for the kids to have to put themselves to bed or teach themselves how to read or, in the case of, you know, A Land Before Time, if their dinosaurs stumble towards the promised land, um, and so in often in often really, really comedic and at times, you know, in often very, very comedic ways, you sort of see this anxiety um, spun out in popular culture. Um, and I think it's the important thing to note about these things is that they're built on a lot of – they're built fundamentally on erasure, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the case for most American families in the 1980s and 90s that um, all mothers were suddenly killed off in car accidents or via cancer, right? It's actually the case that women are going out to work to support – Uh, the depressed wages of people, of families generally, and then coming home, as Arlie Hochschild noted in this book called The Second Shift, working, in fact, a second shift at the home because many of the men that are there are still no longer breadwinners but are still behaving as if they're breadwinners. So it's not the case that, you know, American women died or were suddenly killed off. It's actually more the case that um, women were working double shifts. And so you see this also, um, this valorization of the supermom that we start to see in, um, in the middle 1980s um, the mom who just sort of soldiers through it and doesn't ask for help and doesn't expect any at the same time that we're seeing sort of the demonization of the welfare queen, right? Which is the super mom's kind of polar opposite. The woman who is milking the system, in fact, and in milking the social safety net. So altogether, I think when you add these things together, you sort of get a popular culture, an apparatus of popular culture that is doing a lot to legitimate, uh, austerity measures that were hitting American families very hard, and increasingly hard as we um, we got closer to the 21st century.
0: Mm-hmm. And and along those lines, you mentioned the second shift, and you mention um, men who come home, and even if they're not breadwinners, are thinking they're still breadwinners. So one thing you also set up with sort of the American dad is that 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 idea that we can't be weak, right? That being strong and being able to be independent and 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 sort of the militarization of the you know the american male
1: mhm so right, right,
0: can you talk maybe a little bit about that as well
1: yeah it's it's kind of one of these 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 things where you look in retrospect and you say, you know one of the reasons why um sort of in the nineteen eighties you see so many representations of masculinity that were so over the top is because masculinity was in uh, largely a crisis in that period, and so um, it you know it's no mistake that sort of Hulk Hogan and Trumped up literally and inflated as sort of symbols of what masculinity was supposed to be, because it's exactly at that time that sort of the material foundations for male fran- male enfranchisement, both in the home and publicly, were shakier than they had ever been, and that the that you know sort of the the other side of this is that sort of propping up masculinity as a um, as a value and as an identity serves a purpose to actually help to inculcate the next generation of millennials into the roles that capitalism and the state needed us to serve, right? So that when you see um, unabashed military propaganda, like the movie Top Gun, or, you know, the, the first Blood series with Rambo, these are explicitly intended on the part of the American defense establishment in ways that I talk about in this book to rope in the next generation of American soldiers. There's a speech that Ronald Reagan gave at the Epcot Center in 1983 saying that, you know, when you see kids playing a, an arcade game like Space Invaders, that you're really watching the next generation of uh, Air Force pilots grow up. So it's it's kind of a, um, a, a, a sword that cut a couple of ways that at the same time that um, people were getting sort of these images of masculinity that were very, very romantic and made to, meant to make people. Um, Think about the good old days when, you know, America was great precisely because the male breadwinner had been enfranchised by government programs like the GI Bill, that these pop culture representations are also sort of meant uh, to make the armed forces and the military seem uh, to young children who are growing up like a great career path. And of course, 9-11 is sort of the the animating crisis that for many American soldiers sort of um, activates that. Um, earlier cultural programming that we saw in the 1980s. But I guess we can talk about that when we get into the, the third part of the book.
0: Right. But this sort of moves us into that second part, right, when we get to the, the 1990s where you're talking about how that entrance into the 1990s comes with... Um, with McGuire and Canseco battling it out um, with the sort of home run you know, trying to see who can hit more home runs and you talk a bit about sort of that, the return of um, sort of the hair metal and all of that and so can you talk a little bit about um, you start that sort of second section with, let you know, with the chapter on entertain us and um, sort of what's going on as we enter the 90s. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think the, you know, the, the fourth chapter, um, which sort of begins the second, um, the second quarter of the book is sort of just reflecting on generally the 1980s as a decade that was defined largely by a culture of excess in many ways. But that, you know, as as we know, history moves largely, at least at the very least on the symbolic level, and also because of sort of the ebbs and flows of capitalism in cycles, so that eras of sort of overdone excess like that are are oftentimes followed by sort of a, a bit of a fallout, so that culturally, the 1990s, or at least the early part of it, I think, are defined much more by sort of a a general sense that with the end of the Cold War and the end of history, as in, in fact, as Francis Fukuyama put it, um, that there was a general deflation of the great sort of grand conflicts that had defined uh, life in the twenty in the, in the earlier 20th century. Um, and that many of the basic questions about how to arrange sort of wealth and resources um, in society were solved because capitalism had in fact defeated the communist threat um, that for some, a culture of sort of apathy creeps in as the nineties go on. And um, that apathy turns in some ways to nihilism, right? Mm-hmm. That um, you sort of have, A lot of these fears that society, without sort of a great war uh, to sort of organize society around, many of the anxieties that people were feeling from the fallout of that social arrangement were in fact projected onto children. So chapter four goes into chapter five talking about Generation X kind of as the symbol of um, what many cultural conservatives and pundits had thought about as the worst fears for American children, that uh, representations like Beavis and Butthead um really kind of represented exactly what directives like a nation at risk were trying to prevent, right? Like these, you know, couple of guys who are guys who are basically just douches don't really seem to have much interest beyond um sort of lighting things on fire, really, like I said, represents a, a worst fear. And that it's it's impossible to get that um what happened is that you get that same fear about Generation X at the same time that you get sort of the elevation of the millennial generation as this is your last chance to be great parents is really the cultural messaging that is being sent to baby boomers at this point, <laughs> right? Like so much so that it gets to the, it gets to the stage where concerns about Beavis and Budhead as a television show that cultural critics are having actually are borne out somewhat in real life, right? Like there's an unintended uh, six year old kid who in 1993 just burns his house down because he's watching Beavis and Budhead Um, And seeing Beavis just say fire, fire every other episode. And so this kid decides to get a book of matches and just lay, lay waste to the whole thing. Parents groups protest MTV to the point where MTV has to actually take um, the seven o'clock episode or the seven o'clock showing of Beavis and Butthead off the air of MTV, because they figure this was the episode that is most likely to be watched by unattended children. And so there is sort of where I go into chapter five, talking about just this dialectic that existed between Um, The bad influence of Generation X and sort of the hero generation of um, millennial children and how you see in in movies like Kids, you have to do everything to um, sort of buffer the younger generation against the corrupting influence of the older and that all of this, this entire cultural conversation is taking place. With the subtext of parents spending less time with their children than they had at any point prior, exactly because, A, the social safety net was um, atrophying to dangerous levels. I mean, in the Clinton administration, um, temporary assistance to needy needy families decreases by about um, 40 percent in this era. And also depressed wages make it so that parents have to pick up more and more um, hours on the job. And so this whole cultural conversation about Bart being a bad, Bart Simpson being a bad influence or Beavis being a bad influence, all of this is taking place in the context of parents not actually being able to do as much parenting as they probably should because of the direction that neoliberalism was taking American families in, in this era.
0: Right. And then on top of that, you move into talking about sort of the work that millennials do for no profit, right? So how millennials are sort of right. doing the work for these major corporations, but not getting compensated for that. And so can you talk about sort of that move that you see happening in the 1990s as well?
1: Yeah, so it's it's definitely the case that I think most, if not all, um, millennial listeners of this podcast are going to have some kind of an experience of either an abusive work situation in their adulthood working on an internship without pay or getting stiffed as freelancers. I think it's kind of important to point out that although many of us sort of began to suffer that in the 2000s and 2010s, you can already sort of start to see the cultural trappings of that in films in the 1990s, that you have movies like The Parent Trap or Home Alone or Curly Sue or television shows like uh, Captain Planet, where kids are really being charged with, like, the, the the responsibilities of reconciling and fixing all of their adults' problems. And they're going to do all of these things out of the goodness of their hearts, right? Like, Cop and a Half, there's a, a scene in this movie, or the whole movie is built around the idea of a kid, you know, essentially joining the police force because it just seems like the right thing for him to do. And we never actually see whether or not this kid is on the Tampa Bay payroll, right? Like, he's, like, we're so we're just kind of led to believe that this is really the way to go. If you're an American millennial, there's just a general cultural expectation that exists that, um, you know, look, a number of things happened that made it so that you're probably not going to have the same safety net that your baby boomer parents did. But then also, um, there are a number of problems that you're being left with that you're sort of going to be expected, um, to fix. And so you see that, um, sort of start to get born out, uh, more privately, sort of in the 1990s with, um, you know, in the, in the movie home alone, for example, like, why is this kid doing everything to protect his children's house or his parents' house? Um, Why in Curly Sue is it sort of the responsibility of this kid to um, make sure that her dad finds a suitable mate or in Sleepless in Seattle that the parent um, or that the kid is doing the work to to make it so that his dad um, is able to have some kind of closure and move on with his life with somebody else as a, as a widowed husband. Like, all of these sort of these these sort of films and representations that we saw in that period point to the idea that you inherited a bunch of problems and you're going to have to really kind of fix most of these and and do most of them out of kind of an altruistic impulse
0: and then before we get to your third chapter, you sort of bring up both Columbine, but also the Y2K bug, right? And there's, so there's this sort of fear that is setting uh, setting us up for 2000. Um, can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about how that sort of defines what's going on?
1: Yeah, I think the, the Y2K panic for people who might not familiar, be familiar with it, right? Like there the idea is that uh, computer software um, and other sort of digital accounting software is going to be unable to differentiate between the year... Uh, 2000 when the calendar changes from 1999 to 2000 digital accounting software is going to be unable to tell the difference between the year 2000 and in fact the year 1900 Um, and so that people are afraid that they're going to end up getting billed for like a hundred years worth of like phone service or cable or something like that right and it's just kind of an odd like an odd instance where it's like are, are people really that cash-strapped? Cash-strapped at this point, where um, potentially like a, a two hundred or three hundred dollar phone bill is going to just like shipwreck the family. And so I think that's kind of a. And you know, Nike is producing commercials about it and trying to sort of make money off of the panic as well. There's a great commercial that I talk about a little bit in the book where there's like a jogger um, running through the streets of like utter mayhem on, on New Year's Day two thousand. Uh, just sort of unbothered by um, the social upheaval that's been unleashed by uh, the turn of the millennia. It's just one of these examples where, kind of like the the cultural anxiety is so clearly linked to economic anxiety. But that we had sort of reached a stage where politically in the age of Clinton at the, the micro level and then in a broader sense that the turn towards neoliberalism kind of represented an idea that most of the anxieties that people had about the economy were going to be privatized. We had no real functioning public mechanism to hold uh, you know, our political leaders accountable for um, raising wages to a livable wage. Um, welfare at this point was basically a curse word in American political discourse and that, as I said before, most of the anxieties that people had about what was going on with the economy were largely um, sort of born privately. I think that where the Columbine massacre of 1999 fits into this is sort of in the same way that, uh, you know, you have George George w, George H.W. Bush, excuse me, the first giving speeches about Bart Simpson being a bad influence and, you know, him sort of missing the, the, the Waltons um, and cultural conservatives and others coming out against Beavis and Butthead, that – Parents groups that were concerned and other senatorial leadership like Joseph Lieberman, that were concerned about violence in video games and American entertainment, finally in the Columbine massacre actually had um, kind of the big bad wolf and that you know suddenly all the things that had previously been um, talked about at the level of simulacra now seem to be real. Like you actually have near millennials who were um, studying and you, you know studying and playing video games like Doom you know, largely unattended, sort of talking to other um, people that were disaffected on internet message boards, and that um, the work of these largely unattended kids sort of came to came to pass in in really one of the most awful days in American history. You know, the the heart of that, I think, many people tried to make it in the moment about the video games or about the violence and entertainment. But really, this was mostly a story about um, children who didn't who really were not as supervised as they should have been. Um, and so the, again, kind of trying to ground um, these moments that seep into the American mainstream and the American consciousness that are meant to symbolize one thing that are actually mean something completely different. I think that um, a lot of the irony about the uproar over Columbine um, and uh, the uproar over the violent entertainment that largely um, undoubtedly influenced the, um, The massacrists in this case, it's kind of ironic because there was really no bigger peddler of violence in American entertainment at this stage than the American government, right? Like in 1999, the Army Games Project was founded um, with the explicit intent of creating the game that eventually became America's Army to try to get kids hooked on the idea that, you know, know, bloodshed and fighting in the military is a great career path. Um, Like I said before, films like Top Gun that are directly subsidized by the American defense establishment. You know the the American defense establishment at one point in time um, creates a mod version of the video game Doom for the again for the express purpose of of trying to sort of use that as a both training tool for soldiers that already had as well as a recruitment tool for soldiers that could be on the way. So it really wasn't really wasn't actually about the violence and it really wasn't about actually about the video games. I think that this was largely a lot of anxiety that people were having as the the calendar sort of. So to turn to the new millennium, and of course everybody knows that the the disaster that uh, everybody thought was going to happen um, at some point in time in the the turn to the year 2000 was actually about 18 months away and happens in 2001 –
0: Right, and that's so. So you move, and your next, your third, sort of the third part of the book, where we're moving into young adulthood, really situates and really starts with September 11th in 2001, and because you're looking at popular culture, you do this. This. Wonderful. I I hate to say that September 11th is wonderful, but you situate um, Jay-Z's The Blueprint, which was released on September 11th, with what was going on during that time period. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach September 11th and how you use Jay-Z to do that?
1: Yeah, so the, um, the book being divided as it is into four quarters, like the first three chapters comprise one quarter that deals with the 80s. The second... Three chapters comprise another quarter that deals with the 90s. By the time we get to um, chapters 7, 8, and 9, um, it's the part that deals with millennial young adulthood that covers uh, the 2000s. It kind of strikes me that we've heard and talked a lot about the significance of 9-11 as a political event. Um, but we don't often talk about it much as a cultural event right and so it's very from the from the from the vantage point of a writer it's very convenient that you know 9/11 2001 was a record release tuesday um and this was still in the period before you know friday album releases which i think started a a, a couple of years ago for about a decade or a decade or more um american music is released on tuesdays systematically right so um, 9/11 being one of these days, I think that it's it's really it was very it was it was kind of a, an opportunity to look at well, of the music that was released on that day, what seemed to have the most to do with what that day has been remembered as, and so I really focus in on Jay Z's The Blueprint because that that record is so much about sort of um, one exceptional one exceptional individual's sort of ability to survive and transcend tragedy and uh disprivilege and circumstance of one kind or another that when you have um sort of songs like never change where jay-z is talking about losses that he suffered as a drug dealer and having to do so much work in order to, to to prove resilient um against like that adverse circumstance that that really does provide a lot of the cultural script for the way that 9-11 as a political event and, you know, the spectacular collapse of the twin towers is sort of understood and mobilized. The mayor of Jay-Z's home city New York, Rudy Giuliani is quoted as saying in the aftermath of 9-11, you know, we're going to come out of this economically stronger. We're going to come out of this politically stronger. We're going to come out of this emotionally stronger. I think really does resonate to me as like, really this, the, the emotional core of what the blueprint was about as an album, and is also the emotional core for the way that 9-11 is mobilized in the 2000s, right? That mm-hmm. once resilience is sort of introduced to revenge, once resilience is introduced to the possibility of revenge, you get sort of the, the, the general um, cultural texture of the 2000s is largely defined along the lines of tragedy turning itself in one way or another into an opportunity to be resilient, Right. Trauma turning itself into an opportunity for somebody to prove uh, their ability to triumph. So I think that these sort of these sort of ideas about how to meet adversarial circumstances, i.e. through individual um, oomph rather than through collective effort from sort of exceptionalism at the individual level rather than through collective struggle, I think are really defining um, aspects of the neoliberal ethos and how people are t- sort of taught to understand and face social problems that that have directly to do with the way that we've um, decided to apportion resources in this country.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so you move from Jay-Z to your next chapter also using Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and sort of this um, the idea, also the idea of um, the nerds and the new generation. And so can you talk a little bit about how you also see um, Zuckerberg and his role in this, in the two thousands.
1: Yeah. So I started in, in, um, chapter eight was just sort of looking for like, man, I want to know what it was that Mark Zuckerberg was actually up to like on nine right? Like, it seems like there's a, there's a link in there somehow to understanding how it was that sort of Facebook is a, an entity that, you know, is built around the idea that, You can be connected with all people that you know um, in real time at any point Um, seems very much to belong to um, the era of 9-11. But I actually knew before researching this book, like surprisingly little about what that whether or not there was actually any emotional transference there. And so I sort of find out and and write about this in the course of the book that on 9-11, of course, Mark Zuckerberg is working, you know, sort of in a charter school um, as a tech proctor. And so while people are watching these um, towers collapse, he's like. He's like teaching other students how to use their email so they can get in touch with their parents because because phone lines at that point were so crowded um, that really the only place that there was bandwidth for many people to get in touch with their loved ones and let them know that they're okay um, is over email. So I think there's something about that, just kind of that image that lets one really sort of understand and know how much it is that Facebook belongs to the immediate 9-11 moment. I think on a different on a deeper level, Mark Zuckerberg's career is largely indicative of the ways that millennia into American neoliberalism back in the 1980s, when we had saw, um, you know, Time magazine covers celebrating uh, those Asian American whiz kids and sort of, you know, in a series of um, articles sort of touting tech is sort of the new the face of the new economy. I think that the, um, the sort of nerd archetype that Mark Zuckerberg represents is very much one of um, somebody that's sort of able to turn the the social wreckage of being a social outcast and somebody who was seen as a little bit outside of this typical model of masculinity into an actual opportunity to, to double down on masculine mores itself. There's a book called American Nerd, uh, the author of which I'm sort of drawing a blank on at the moment that talks a lot about these ideas. Another by um, the thinker Jody Dean called Blog Theory, where she sort of says that, you know, geek norms are largely sort of the norms through which neoliberalism reinvents itself in the 21st century. That at the same time, it does sort of represent kind of this idea that at the same time that you can be, you know, socially cast out and somewhat socially marginalized, that there are real privileges that are afforded to you as a result of that. And so it kind of links back to what we were saying before about 9-11 kind of representing um, sort of a, a turn tragedy into triumph sort of ethos that many of us grew up with.
0: Okay. So can you talk a little bit then about one of the things you mentioned in this final chapter in this section is the role of Katrina as the black 9-11. So can you talk a little bit about Katrina and how you see Katrina defining how we look at people of color, millennials of color, especially during um, the mid two thousands?
1: Yeah. I think that's what what hurricane Katrina uh, represented in many ways was sort of the the first fissure in the discourse around race that had taken place in the post-civil rights era, largely or, or along neoliberalized lines. You have, um, in the middle 1980s, a GOP operative named Lee Atwater, as an example, talking about sort of the, the, the code switching that goes on from the era of, you know, forced busing and very, very obvious, ugly instances of uh, racial disparities on the television in the 60s and 70s, into one where uh, first cultural conservatives and then eventually people that are uh, nominally on the left, Democrats, right, using euphemisms like tax cuts or using euphemisms like uh, states' rights or using euphemisms like individual initiative, um, and that all these things are really, really explicitly in Atwater's own framework. I talk about this in the book. Like The quote that he provides is very lucid in this regard. Even in Atwater's own framework, uh, these codes and sort of dog whistles are meant very, very explicitly to economically disenfranchise one group, i.e. people of color, over white Americans. And so these uh, this sort of framing of race in the United States proves remarkably tenacious for a number of decades, I think. What Hurricane Katrina really represents is the first crack in that when you have a very, very obvious instance of a natural disaster so clearly disproportionately so clearly and disproportionately disadvantaging uh, people of color and black folks in specific, largely as a result of how resources are sort of allocated in uh, a much poorer part of the city. There's no denying that. There's no denying seeing black children and black families wading through rivers that are suddenly that are suddenly now in the middle of their streets, there's no denying seeing clusters of black folks clinging to one another in the superdome. And so, you know, when you, when you finally get to the point where you see Kanye West going on television and saying, George Bush doesn't care about black people. That's a a very, very specific indictment of the way that uh, I think late capitalism and its representatives um, were sort of dealing with people who are historically disadvantaged. I think that, yeah. And so that's, that's sort of, culturally what I think the spectacle of Hurricane Katrina represented in a lot of ways. And I think that it's really, really difficult. You can't understate the impact that an event like that may have had, um, sort of stoking a lot of the consciousness and awareness around race for a generation that eventually not only elects President Obama, largely because it sees him as a salve to those problems. But while he's in fact still in office, people are recognizing the, the weakness of or the inadequacy, I should say, of electoral politics to address radical disparities in the American system. And that one of the strange um, kind of ironies of history is that Black Lives Matter movement starts not under a Trump presidency and is inflamed not under a Trump presidency, but in the waning years of the Obama administration. Um, And that, uh, I think that does something to speak, um, that speaks a lot to sort of the, um, the fact that American leaders and presidents across era um, in as much as they're upholding uh, capitalism as a system have a lot more in common a lot in a lot of ways as they do than they do apart from one another and that it would kind of probably seem confusing to me if I were looking back on this era maybe a hundred years out and saying it really does seem and feel like Black Lives Matter is something that would have started much more under a, a prospective Trump administration not under the administration of the first black president but those are the facts.
0: Right. And and so before we move into your sort of final section, your adulthood part, you also talk about LeBron James in this fascinating way to use LeBron James to think about some of these millennials and, and and the millennial experience and and that millennial relationship to capitalism. And so can you talk a little bit about LeBron James?
1: Yeah, I think That there was a lot of what's called disaster porn in the late 2000s, right? A lot of and I I think that, you know, 9-11 as a a cultural event is uh, an early example and in fact the ultimate example of this and that we see sort of smaller reverberations or uh, tenors out from that initial shock culturally in all kinds of ways. One of the ways that you see it is specifically around the resilience narrative that I think is reanimated in the aftermath of the Great Recession, and that LeBron James's career is really not, or at least the first half of it, is really not comprehensible, except in relation to, relationship to the resilience narrative of the American Midwest in the aftermath of the Great Recession. Culturally, I mean, you go and you look at Cleveland Cavs games from... Uh, the 2000s it's really really difficult to watch any of these playoff games without hearing a broadcaster talk about you know how much it would mean to the city of Cleveland uh to get a championship after everything that it's gone through and what it has actually gone through is never is rarely explicitly identified right like you you're not going to hear like Mike Breen or Jeff Van Gundy like really really goes into the go into the specifics of how it was that austerity measures of really disadvantage the american midwest but nonetheless there's this general just cultural sense that like um socio-political problems that cleveland has suffered and the midwest has suffered for so many years um will somehow be remedied by a championship that this individual is being tasked to bring them and so you you see a couple of things here right like i think this this really does do something to animate sort of those earlier myths that we were talking about in movies like the parent trap or home alone where it's really up to the millennial of which you know millennial generation of which LeBron James is a member having been born in 1984 to pick up, um, a lot of the slack and a lot of the, um, to clean up a lot of the disadvantages that they've been handed. I also think in that moment, um, in the late two thousands, in the aftermath of the recession, LeBron James's career is also deeply representative of specific ways that American capitalism is using millennials to sort of rebound, um, after this financial calamity, right? That um, we know from studies that have been done sort of defined benefit contribution schemes that American corporations uh, sort of had that privileged mostly their older employees. You see these in both the public and private sector. Um, A lot of these dry up because they're pension funds that are wrapped up in securities that were, you know, that went totally AWOL during the recession. And so through a process of wage throttling, younger employees This is really one of the chief ways that American capitalism is sort of able to rebound, right? And that this is where you start to see sort of the rise of the intern and the rise of the freelance worker. Um, Not one month after the financial collapse in 2008, a book comes out called The Trophy Kids Grow Up. And an excerpt of this book is published in the Wall Street Journal explaining, look, there's an opportunity. There's a bit of an opportunity here when we're looking at um, places where you can sort of, you know, you can cut costs and it's, Because millennials are inherently motivated by praise over pay. They don't actually want to be compensated. And so millennial labor really becomes um, a business opportunity uh, for American capitalism in the aftermath of the recession.
0: And that sort of moves us into your final section on sort of the millennial all grown up, right? This move to adulthood where you talk about the millennial man and the millennial woman. So can you talk a little bit about what you see as this sort of the adulthood of the millennial?
1: So uh, one of the things that the, the last quarter of the book is really preoccupied with is sort of looking at this this transition out of looking at American uh, politics strictly through the lens of popular culture and saying, if pop culture is so indicative and so representative of a very flawed social order and a very flawed political system and a very flawed phase of, of Americanism so at some point in time, um, you sort of have to turn uh, the page, as it were, and look at uh, political uh, solution to that structural order that um, popular culture is so representative of. Um, and so that's sort of the the general those last three chapters. I think that um, the 10th chapter, which sort of looks at, looks a lot at sort of millennial masculinity in the ways that it's related to um, sort of that those earlier trends that we saw in the 1980s sort of showing where there was largely a economic revolution in the ways that families are structured in the ways that many financial burdens are in fact shared between men and women in ways that maybe they hadn't had been not had had not been previously, but that there wasn't an attendant sort of social revolution that made um, men of a certain age actually adjust their expectations in any way so that you actually had a situation where, um, men behaved in ways that were just as entitled and just as, um, expectant of female, uh, labor and resources, even though the material foundations of that sort of social arrangement were no longer in place. And so the millennial, um, man chapter sort of focuses on, you know, looking at in specific the music of, um, Drake in the comedy of Aziz Ansari is sort of representative of sort of this new era of male um, entitlement that American um, millennial men are largely um, guilty of sort of perpetrating and recycling.
0: Right. And then you move into sort of like the millennial woman and sort of the idea of pop feminism. And so can you talk a little bit about that as well and what you see going on with sort of the millennial woman when they come to adulthood?
1: Yeah. And this is this is always it's sort of difficult territory to get into because I, I know just from this perspective of, of a black millennial that you know a certain emphasis on the acquisition of wealth in the black community exists precisely because the government and the private sector had for so many years existed to despoil people of color in fact, so that um, what people think of as an overemphasis on corporatism, is in many ways kind of a, a, a reparations program that you know we had to start on our own and for ourselves. And so when you get into territory where you're sort of critiquing what it is that historically disprivileged groups do to sort of make up for um, historical inequities, um, a lot of times that case is made very insensitively, I think, to those inequities. Nonetheless, I think there have been scholars who are women. I think of Andy Ziesler's book, um, We Were Feminists Once, as a great example of this scholars and thinkers who are women who do a lot to point out, uh, sort of the limitations of this new era of pop feminism that, um, you sort of see in spots with television shows like sex in the city, but that you start to see, um, in full blown form in, by 2014, right. Beyonce going on the video music awards appearing before the word feminist, really literally turning feminism into a pop culture phenomenon that there are great things about that. There are things about that that are, um, that are very, very necessary. And I think that that confrontation, particularly for men that are um, not used to thinking of feminism as, like, I don't know, something um, that's great, seeing that culturally in a very confrontational way is very powerful. But as Isar points out, there's a, a drawback to um, sort of the idea of feminism being a sort of movement that's built around uh, either consumption or spectatorship as opposed to the actual achievement uh, of. Uh, political gains and economic gains that will benefit all women, not just those who are sort of exceptional or talented enough to become hyper visible. So that's the, it's kind of the first part of that that chapter. I think the second part of it as well is that my understanding is that it's really, really difficult to overstate the impact that certain certain pop culture representation represent, representatives of color have had in making it so that American women of color, in specific, don't feel. Um, alone and uh, alone in being overtaxed in either their work uh, arrangements or uh, romantic situations and that that sort of inequity of um, expectation and labor that we were talking about for the previous chapter chapter 10 that uh, many uh, pop stars who are women do a lot to heighten and call attention to those divides where they exist Um, and that that has like an, an immensely positive psychological impact which i think explains a lot of um the passion that uh many fans have of the the music for for example of uh, Rihanna, Beyoncé and others so
0: so you end the book and I really appreciate this is right you sort of set up here's what you're seeing as sort of this new millennial man, the millennial women, but then you also have this sort of 10 point agenda, right? So it, it isn't that here's the book and I'm just going to tell you what I see, but it's also that we have to take some responsibility here and make, and make some changes if we want to see some change. So can you talk a little bit about your 10 point agenda and sort of what you're really pushing for as you finish this book?
1: Well, it, you know, a lot of it, this book ended up getting uh, finished in uh, February of this year, February of 2017. Right. So that the last uh, few chapters of it are really written kind of as I'm watching the electoral fraud of the 2016 election and that when you see sort of numbers that are surfacing about the millennial turnout paltry as it was, I think hovering at around 33%, um, you're seeing electoral maps of like, you know, here's what the country would have looked like if like only millennials had voted and then you click it and it's like blue as the sky. And then it's like, well, here's what it looks like if only baby boomers had voted. Right. And it looks pretty much like it already does. Those things I mean, they really I think they do a lot to resonate and sort of drive the point home that uh, at a certain point in time, the sort of spectator attitude towards American politics, there are real limitations on that and that you have to find some kind of a way of making that pivot from the spectatorship and sort of searching popular culture for inspiration into uh, direct participation. And so sort of trying to find in that last chapter Actual actionable policies that would make the world a better place, frankly, for like millennials as a generation, but then also for the the larger American social um, project as a whole felt like an important sort of move to make because something just didn't seem right, I guess, about sort of sitting and and just endlessly sort of searching popular culture and relating it to capitalism in all these different kinds of ways and talking about how problematic capitalism is and has been through these representations without um, doing something to provide notes towards a remedy, I guess.
0: So we've talked about your book for a while. (laughs) Do you before we end? um, Are you working on anything new? Is there something you're doing right now that you want to sort of talk about or promote?
1: Yeah, you know, I, You know, work as a a field organizer uh, for a campaign up here in Seattle, a fellow who's a a socialist named John Grant, who's running for city council. And so I it's really not so much promotion as it is kind of for for listeners of this uh, podcast, whether they're um, millennials or not taking a a real firm look sort of at what uh, local races and local races in your, you know, your district or your town or your city um, are looking like, because I think it's sort of easy to get sort of swept away in sort of the national picture and spectatorship on the, the national level. But uh, I guess just sort of in the course of, you know, working on this campaign in the last um, three or four months now in the, the run up to November, seeing just how gratifying it can be to actually get involved at a, at a local kind of grassroots level. And that really for a lot of kind of the lofty issues that we end up talking about and discussing that's how many of these things are going to get resolved, not through sort of the, the taking a step back in the spectatorship, but actually trying to find a way to get involved and participate in politics, you know, at the street level.
0: Right. Yeah. I could not agree with you more about the importance of getting involved in both like the big P and the small P politics and doing that anyway. Right. Uh, so. I want to thank you for talking with me. We've talked for a while. Again, this was Sean Scott, the author of Millennials and the Moments That Made Us, a cultural history of the U.S. from 1982 to the present. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.